You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Earn and Invest Podcast, and I'm Scott Melby. The conversation started rather innocently. We noticed the windmills passing through Iowa and Nebraska. That was when my son mentioned something like 50% of energy production in Illinois is nuclear. Really, I said, 50? I looked it up on Google and he was wrong. It's actually 58%. Up until this point, I thought nuclear was something on the decline. Chernobyl, Fukushima, isn't it dangerous? The farthest thing from my mind was to consider it a growth industry. Maybe even something to invest in. Scott Melby is a 36-year veteran of the nuclear energy industry, having held leadership positions in major uranium mining companies, as well as industry-wide organizations. He currently serves as the chief executive officer of Uranium Royalty Corp., the first and only pure play uranium royalty and streaming company. Scott, welcome to the show. Let's start at the beginning. How the heck did you ever get interested in uranium? Hi, Doc, and thank you for having me on uh, having me on the show. And it's great to to be with your listeners. Yeah, it is a, an interesting industry. Your comments sum it up. As I think people don't know a lot about nuclear, maybe are under the impression that it is kind of a declining industry. But uh, I have the benefit of seeing over the last thirty six, going on thirty seven years now, of nuclear energy from the mid eighties to today. I come from a mining background out here in the Western United States, and so I've always been intrigued by mineral resource companies, but I was more inclined on the commodity side, the finance, corporate development, more than the mining, engineering, and geology. So I got into commodities trading, which started out in New York with a uranium trading company based out of Germany, but I was in New York. And so I got into trading uranium as a commodity in the mid-80s. I worked for the Palo Verde Nuclear Station in Arizona, buying uranium for that three-unit power plant. But bulk of my career has been in uranium mining companies, some of the largest uranium mining companies in the world, Cameco, Kazatomprom out of Kazakhstan, Uranium One, which is now owned by the Russian government. But these days, my background has really moved me into an entrepreneurial phase of my career where taking junior uranium company like Uranium Energy Corp in South Texas and Wyoming and developing those deposits into mining operations or the launching of Uranium Royalty Corp., which is a way for investors to invest in a global portfolio of uranium mines and developments. It really speaks to the excitement and passion of, of the industry today. I've seen you know, the, the public opinion and acceptance for uranium ebb and flow through the years. But as we sit today, it's surprising for, for people to understand that there's approximately a 76% approval rating towards nuclear energy which is up from, you know, years at kind of at the 50-50 level, people either love nuclear energy or, or they were not so thrilled about it. Really begs the question, why is nuclear being seen in, in, in a new light today and being seen so favorably? And we can certainly get into where it fits in the energy mix. Yeah, I definitely want to. But first, I feel like we have to go to some of the basics. For those who don't know, what is uranium? Where is it found? And why is it important? Yeah, so uranium is a mined mineral commodity. We have a lot of it, probably a billion pounds of known and likely resources in the United States. But the major uranium producers today 
are in Canada, Kazakhstan, Australia, Central Africa, and Southern Africa. The United States did lead uranium production for many years through the, the 1980s. And we certainly have a, a re-emerging industry, I would say, in the U.S. and the Western United States using kind of more disruptive technologies to mine uh, uranium in an environmentally friendly way, but also economically to compete with countries like Kazakhstan and Canada. And of course, uranium is used for nuclear, which we use in the United States for energy production. As I had mentioned in the intro, I was amazed to see what percentage of Illinois' energy production was through nuclear. When we look at the United States as a whole, how big a force is nuclear energy? Yeah, and this surprises uh, people as well, is that nuclear energy today comprises 20% of U.S. electricity supply. One in five homes is powered by nuclear power, but it's a full 55% of our carbon-free energy, and that's far more than wind and solar combined. So wind and solar today are about 10% of our electricity supply, but nuclear is our largest carbon-free source. Globally, nuclear energy provides about 10% of global electricity, but a full third of the carbon-free energy. But the the growth around the world, we're seeing 30 different countries either using nuclear energy or building nuclear power plants. We've added 56 new big nuclear power plants to the grid globally in the last eight years, 51 more under construction. So we're really in a robust growth phase which uh, is very exciting for us on the front end, the, the uranium fuel cycle. And uranium is really just back to the question, is, is the raw material which is used to produce nuclear fuel, which is uh, basically a heating element in a nuclear power plant, which boils water to create steam to turn a turbine. So the back end of the plant is very similar to coal-fired plant. It's, it's creating steam in an efficient way and, and energy from the atom, from uranium, is the most efficient energy source. It has the highest energy density. We don't need to mine a lot of material to create a lot of energy. You know, a a uranium pellet about the size of your fingernail would be equivalent to a ton of coal. So I think nuclear energy's day has come for a lot of good reasons. We've always known it's clean, carbon-free, and it's 24-7, but it was really getting the broader investment community, policymakers, public investment community all agree on on its fit in the energy mix going forward. You've made a point of using the term carbon-free a few times. Clearly, it's a cleaner source of energy. Is it safe? I mean, we all have these horror stories in the back of our mind. We remember Chernobyl. We think about Fukushima. This is something that's at the forefront of our mind. Otherwise, we would expect nuclear would be everywhere. How safe do we feel it is today? You know, it's certainly clean, as you, as you mentioned. The carbon emissions are as low as, as wind and solar. Another thing that we're as low as is wind and solar is on safety. If you measure the amount of, you know, the, the millions of, of billions of, kilo, of kilowatts generated by nuclear power since the 1950s, it is the safest form of energy that we, you know, you have sort of fairly high profile incidents through the years which kind of occupy our, our imagination and, and, and kind of frame our thoughts. But the reality is it's the safest form of energy equivalent to wind and solar. So again, that's, we need to do a better job of, in the industry of, of communicating that. It's a bit like air, air travel. I think you know, airline travel is one of the safest forms of transportation, but we all remember the, you know, the, the plane crash, which is kind of shapes our, our attitudes towards it, but clearly much safer than uh, coal-fired generation, millions around the world are dying prematurely from respiratory ailments from coal-fired power plants in India, China, and around the world. So we have to put all that into context uh, when we view various energy alternatives. So why the ebb and flow of popularity? I mean, nuclear has been around for decades, and yet it hasn't seemed to catch on to this point. What's going on? Well, I think a a big thing is really this historic transition towards decarbonization of our of our economy and certainly our energy generation. And we've had big energy transitions through human history, the industrial revolution. I think the the technological advances in fracking and in developing oil and gas resources in the United States made us energy independent. But those are really 
technology-driven transitions in, in, in human history regarding energy. This one is, is interesting because it's being driven more by public policy and ideological preference towards this carbon-free. And there's some dangers and pitfalls in that because, frankly, it's going to be very hard for countries, states, countries, and regions to go completely carbon-free without embracing things like nuclear power because wind and solar, you saw the, the turbines across the central United States. The reality is those run at best 25 to 35% of the time. When the wind is blowing, they're a great way to make electricity. When they're not, they're horrible. They actually require another source of energy somewhere in a spinning standby to back those up. And so in the nuclear energy industry, we're not anti-wind and solar. They have a place in the mix. We actually can be the backup that runs 24-7. The capacity factor for nuclear power plants is 90 to 95%. During the polar vortex, you know, in Illinois, you know how cold it got this winter, nuclear power plants operated at a 95% capacity factor. They were there when they were needed most. And when windmills were frozen in place, even in some cases, coal barges, you know, could make it up the river to coal-fired power plants. Nuclear plants were running 24-7. So when we start to look at energy more holistically and look at nuclear as, as a backup for wind and solar, but a clean energy carbon-free backup, also I think we have to put in context, we don't just have to meet the current amount of electricity demand in the United States and around the world. The need for electricity with the electrification of everything and computerization of our society and now with transportation, cars, buses, and trucks, going to electric vehicles is going to probably increase. You know, in the United States, I think we'll have to increase our, our electricity demand by 50%, according to Elon Musk. So we had better figure out not only how to deliver electricity to our current needs, but also grow and do it with sources of energy which aren't damaging to the environment. So I think it's really in that context that there's lack of alternatives when it comes to generating electricity reliably, safely, cleanly, uh, and in a carbon-free manner. And I guess we do have some examples. I mean, we wonder, you know, the, the Biden administration is bringing this sort of greener energy policy to the United States in, in, you know, we're in, in real time now. But Europe has embraced this for the you know, past 10 to 15 years. And the best example is Germany, which phased out their nuclear power production and went heavily into renewables. It was called the Energiewende process, energy change in Germany. We have now 15 years to see how that worked, and it's been an, an, an unmitigated failure, where uh, energy prices in Germany are 50% higher than neighboring France, which France is kind of like Illinois, where they get 72% of their electricity from nuclear. They have electricity prices 50% lower than Germany, they have, you know, Germany has made very little impact on carbon emissions and the, the moving away from nuclear has caused them to rely more heavily on dirty lignite coal from eastern parts of Germany and very much in the news these days is a reliance on Russian natural gas through the, the Nord Stream pipeline. So they had good intentions in Germany, but the result has been actually quite a, I think, quite a failure. And I think we have to be cautious when we are uh, coming up with our energy policies to not repeat some of those failures. It is good to, to move towards carbon-free, but I think we have to also be cautious to make the best use of all the energy uh, sources. And, and if coal decarbonization, you know, it, you know carbon sequestration can be done with coal-fired power plants, well, maybe those need to, those also play a role. Maybe gas can play a role, nuclear, wind, and solar in a mix. But the, the reality is, the politics are moving towards the, the purely carbon-free measures. And fortunately, we fit that narrative quite nicely. And that's why we're seeing not only public opinion, but also political opinion favoring nuclear these days. I really connect with what you're saying about some of the energy alternatives. One of the things we noticed as we were making this car trip and looking at all those windmills is about half of them weren't turning. Yeah. And it had us scratching our heads why half of them were and half of them weren't. You've talked about the Biden administration. I know the previous administration was not as aggressive about global warming as this administration mm-hmm. will be. How does the political climate in general affect your business? Well, this is really a profound observation for someone who's been doing this their whole life, because I think 
historically, traditionally, nuclear power in the United States has been favored by the right and has always seen support from Republican administrations as part of an all-of-the-above energy strategy, and frankly, opposed by the left and the Democratic Party. But it's really only been in the last couple of years where the Democratic Party platforms have adopted nuclear energy. The Biden administration, through Secretary Granholm, is, is declared that uranium-powered nuclear power plants are an essential part of this carbon decarbonization of the U.S. energy economy and certainly big part of the the push for electric vehicles. That kind of bipartisan support, one, is so unusual these days with with everything so polarized, but it also really bodes well for a constructive policy where, you know, I can tell you firsthand, I testified earlier this year before the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Uh, That's uh, chaired by uh, Senator Manchin, Democrat from uh, West Virginia, and the ranking members, John Barrasso out of Wyoming. And it was a hearing to really discuss how we can revitalize and regain energy leadership in nuclear power and, and put America back to where it was and has been for much of the last you know, four or five decades. And I saw so much bipartisan support in that, in that committee hearing. The questions were very constructive. Well, how do we use small modular reactors or advanced reactors? How do we produce more uranium in the United States and not rely on Russia? And uh, it really speaks to this support. And it's not surprising we've seen a lot of nuclear legislation pass at a time where very few bills are passing. We can't even pass budget uh, legislation in in this polarized Congress we have. You know, it's it's nice to see guys like Cory Booker out of New Jersey coming alongside John Barrasso out of Wyoming and supporting nuclear legislation. And it may be preserving nuclear power plants, the existing fleet. Like in Illinois, you've seen some of your nuclear power plants, Byron and uh, Dresden in Illinois, being challenged by sort of this, the market dysfunctions that exist in Illinois and in the central United States and on the East Coast. It's not that nuclear plants aren't competitive. They can produce electricity at three to five cents a kilowatt hour, but we've distorted the deregulated markets by the huge amount of subsidies on wind and solar. And, you know, cheap gas doesn't help. But what we've done is we, we're pushing the carbon-free baseload 24-7 power source off the market, and we're favoring the most intermittent sort of unreliable sources of, of, of energy. Even natural gas is a great way to make electricity when gas is cheap. But when gas prices go up, like we saw in Texas with the cold spell this year, you get $10,000 energy bills. So uh, what's nice is we're beginning to see legislatures and and hopefully the Illinois legislature moves forward and preserves those two plants by basically just giving them credit for carbon-free energy that they give wind and solar and giving credit for the base load backup, the base of energy sources that you need in in Illinois. So we're seeing very positive developments on that front, but it really helps at the federal level too to, to see both Democrats and Republicans saying, yeah, we need new reactors and we need to preserve the existing fleet. We're talking with Scott Melby. He is a 36-year veteran of the nuclear energy industry, having held leadership positions in major uranium mining companies as well as industry-wide organizations. We are talking about nuclear energy production. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. 
Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Are you on the cusp of entering the stock market for the first time? I remember when I was in your shoes how difficult I found it to take that first initial step. How do you get started and where do you go to learn? That's why I'm telling people about public.com. On public.com, you can invest with any amount of money, invest in $1,000 stocks with just $1. They allow the ability to buy slices of shares and it offers more flexibility on what you can add to your portfolio. But not only that, When you invest in public.com, you're never investing alone. They make it easy to collaborate and build your confidence as an investor. On the app, you can connect with other users. These are friends, other members, and even notable investors to learn new things together and see how they're investing. I highly suggest the public.com app. You can use code EAI when you download the app to let public.com know you're coming from the Earn and Invest podcast. And you'll get up to $50 in free stocks to get started in growing your portfolio. This is valid for U.S. residents 18 years old and older. Subject to account approval, see public.com slash disclosures. This is not investment advice. Let me reintroduce you. We're talking to Scott Melby, Chief Executive Officer of the Uranium Royalty Corp., the first and only pure play uranium royalty and streaming company, Scott, let's talk about this title, Pure Play Uranium Royalty and Streaming Company. What does pure play mean? So when we use the term pure play, it, it, in this context, it relates to a pure play investment in uranium, in nuclear energy. And I think a lot of people are excited about the role that nuclear energy plays in our energy mix going forward. And so the, the next question they ask is, how do I invest? How do I invest in this story? And an excellent way to do that is through the uranium fuel cycle, the the raw material that fuels these these clean power plants. In our case, Uranium Royalty Corp. is a royalty company. So we invest in and come alongside uranium miners and developers around the world in the form of acquiring royalties or streaming interests on their mines. So we don't own the mines or the workforce. We don't have to maintain the leases and the landowners. We just provide capital to a miner and developer to get his mine moving forward. And in exchange, we receive an interest on every pound that they produce going forward. It could be financial as a percentage of the revenue, or it could be actual physical pounds of uranium that, that we can uh, monetize. But uh, Uranium Royalty Corp is very different than, you know, it is a diversified pure play in that when you invest in Uranium Royalty Corp, you have exposure to 16 different assets in our portfolio. That's very different than a uranium mining company, which is, a, is an excellent way to get exposure on, on the uranium story. And our company, our, our largest shareholder in Uranium Royalty Corp is Uranium Energy Corp. And that's a Texas-based uranium miner and developer with assets in Texas and Wyoming. There, we are actually discovering or exploring, discovering, developing uranium operations, producing uranium, and ultimately selling it to electric utility companies. So that gives you extremely good leverage to to the uranium story. Another way is through ETFs. So there are funds that hold a basket of all or or a significant portion of the uranium companies uh, in the industry in an ETF. But there's also commodity investments. There are a couple of companies like Sprott Physical Uranium Trust or, or Yellow Cake out of London where you can invest in warehouse uranium. So you're speculating on the price of the commodity 
not the ability of a company to mine it and, and make a profit. So a lot of different ways you can invest. Um, it's probably easier that way than to invest in the reactors themselves, although we're seeing extremely exciting developments on small, modular, and advanced reactors. A lot of these, those are to date held by private equity or the, or the companies developing themselves. The electric utility companies are a way to invest, but they're also diversified, right? Um, they may have interests in wind, solar, coal, uranium, gas. So the pure play really comes from investing in the uranium commodity underlying the industry. And I want to just make sure we make this clear for everybody. Can you further define what a royalty is versus streaming? Like what's the difference and why is that important to your company? So uh, a royalty may be, give you an example, there may be a miner in Australia who needs $50 million of capital investment to bring their operation into production. Our company can provide that capital in exchange, provide that capital up front in exchange for a one, two, three percent interest on every pound they produce from that mine. Uranium will be produced, it'll be sold at $50 a pound. We would get one, two, three percent of, of the revenue from the uranium produced and sold. So uh, we get the benefit of extended mine life, of increased production. We do take the risk that the mine doesn't produce, but that's why we do a, a great deal of due diligence on both the geology, mining engineering, political risk, all the things that you would want to assess when you're investing in a uranium mining operation. But the benefit is our team has, you know, 30 years experience in, in uranium mining and development. So we kind of do that legwork for the investors. So they get a comfort that someone's done their homework. And so in a sense, a royalty is a pure capital play. Yeah, it's our company can be run with five people. We're $200 million market cap today. We could grow revenues, double, triple, quadruple revenues, and still manage the company with five employees. It's some of the, the most, the highest profit per workforce ratio of, of any industry because it doesn't, we don't have to manage the operations. We don't have to come up with cash calls on, on, on the, uh, running the company. It's become quite popular model in base and precious metals. You look at companies like Franco Nevada, Sandstorm, Wheat and Precious Metals, Royal Gold, probably a $50 billion industry that just owns these royalty interests. Streaming is like a royalty, but it's a way for a company like ours to provide capital up front, but be paid through uranium deliveries. We have accounts at facilities where we can take physical uranium in lieu of cash payments. So we're uh, happy to take either. Let me interrupt this investing conversation real quickly because it brings about a question that I forgot to ask earlier. We've been talking about uranium as the driver of nuclear power. Is that the only molecule that's being used currently to build these power plants? Yeah, it, it is the most efficient. The U-235 isotope, which occurs in natural uranium, is the most effective and efficient in terms of fissioning. And that's where you get this so much intense energy in such a small package. You know, there are other sort of radioactive elements like thorium, which, you know, are being looked at, but they, you know, India has been researching that for decades and they ultimately want to develop, you know, the Indian kind of indigenous thorium style reactors. I think those are quite a few decades off, but uranium is the the go-to around the world. So if I'm listening to this, Scott, and I'm saying, I totally buy into it, we need to invest more in energy. As your everyday investor, why nuclear as opposed to looking at solar or wind? Is there an advantage, you think, in uranium? Well, I think there has been a lot, enormous amount of investing in wind and solar and electric vehicles, this sort of ESG investing environment and social governance investing where People want to see their invested dollars go into clean energy and, and companies that you know are taking steps to reduce their carbon footprint. So you've had enormous amount of capital flow into solar companies, wind companies, but frankly, there's only so much those, those companies can grow. And again, not being negative on wind and solar, but I think anytime you get greater than 30, 40% installed wind and solar capacity on a grid, you start to get diminishing returns. You have 
intermittent, intermittent on intermittent. And uh, it gets to a point where the economics break down. So I think with nuclear energy, you're at a, a beginning phase in, in a bull market for the Iranian commodity, but you're also riding this mega trend of, of nuclear energy deployment. And again, we've seen more, we've seen a, a, the, the percentage of nuclear electricity generation around the world today exceeds where we were prior to Fukushima. So even though we saw impacts over the last 10 years, we're now growing at a rate probably over the next three to four years of, you know, two to two to three percent uh, growth over that period. And I think with the advent of these small modular and advanced reactors, which are smaller versions of the big reactors, you know, we really have an enormous growth platform. So you're able to invest in a green energy technology, which is really at the, I would say, in the early stages of, of a real growth phase. Are the ESG fund makers looking at uranium as something to put into their profile? Is it are they including them in these ESG funds? Yeah, they they are. And again, it it, it hasn't always been the case. I think sometimes they've always looked at nuclear and and wondered, well, does this qualify as clean and green? I mean, the European community made this decision in the taxonomy discussions of of the European community as to what energy industries are acceptable to invest in. And they've come to the conclusion this year that yes, nuclear should be considered alongside other clean and green energy technologies. So a lot of the improvement in uranium equities, if you look at the low point in global equities in March of last year with the coronavirus, a number of the uranium equities have, have appreciated quite significantly over that uh, the past uh, little more than a year. And a lot of that has been that investing, kind of green energy investing. The real boost comes when the uranium price starts to, to really move beyond. You know, we've, we've gone from $17 a pound, it was the low point in the uranium spot price in 2016, to about $32 a pound today. But $32 a pound is still below where most producers need to restart mines or build new mines. And so we've talked about the megatrend. You just wanted the nuts and bolts of supply and demand. We're consuming a lot of uranium and we're producing far less than we're consuming and have done so now, you know, for the last four or five years, we're producing 50, 60 million pounds a year, less than we're consuming. So again, it would be true in copper or cotton or any other commodity. If you had that kind of disparity and the inventory is being drawn down, that the, the prospect for uranium prices going up looks as good today as it, as it has in some time. And I think it's more imminent now. It's always been inevitable, but I think it's more imminent now with all these various supply and demand fundamentals all pointing in the right direction. So as an investor, the entry point is great. I mean, if you look at the micro market, uranium equities have pulled back a bit over the course of the summer. The uranium price has kind of stalled at $32 a pound, not because of anything fundamental to the market, but just seasonal weakness in uranium buying activity by electric utility companies. One of the largest utilities in the world is Electricity de France. And they are largely, as you know, in Europe, they go on vacation for the month of, of August. So buying activity is very quiet right now, but I think it really masks the underlying strength that we saw you know, the first half of this year and, and we'll see going into the second half of the year and into 2022. So uh, the thesis is good on, on, on the mega trends, on the supply fundamentals, the uh, demand fundamentals, but also now I think you'll have electric utility companies kind of renewing their procurement cycle in the second half of the year, which should push, push uranium prices up and be a real catalyst for uranium investments. What about the availability of uranium to mine worldwide? I mean, could that be a choke point? Is it possible that the stores just aren't as large as we're hoping they are? Yeah. Well, uranium is quite an abundant commodity and there's crust. So I don't think we have to worry about running out of uranium, but it is getting more and more difficult. I mean, it's difficult to, to site a highway or a a shopping mall in today's society. So imagine trying to permit and license uranium operations. So you have instances where countries may have uranium, like Spain was trying to build a uranium mine in the Salamanca region of Spain, which would have, you know, they faced 50% youth unemployment in, in this part of 
Spain, and, and they basically turned down the development of that uranium mine, which could have provided so much employment. So even though it made all the sense in the world for clean energy, jobs, everything else, they didn't get the social license to, 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 to move forward. So I think, you know, as a uranium investor, you also need to, to look and say, okay, where are the countries and regions and states where uranium mining is embraced? Like our operations at Uranium Energy Corp in South Texas and Wyoming, the landowners, the local government, state government, federal government all want us there and are welcoming us there. And we're getting reasonable permitting licensing times to, to, to bring mines into production. So even though uranium might be quite abundant around the world, it's not easy to mine. And it probably takes, you can understand, six, seven, eight years to permit and license a new uranium mine. But that also plays very well into the investment narrative is uranium prices could increase quite significantly. And unlike copper or gold, where uranium, you know, mine production could come in quite quickly, we might see a period of time where the uranium prices uh, run higher and longer because it takes a while to bring new new mines on. But that's all part of the positive investment narrative. Uranium is not the most efficient commodity like copper or gold, but when you get into this undersupplied scenario that we're moving into now, that really is an is a added benefit to the investment thesis. How big of an untapped market do you think there is? I know that this is your field. Are there a lot of players in the uranium field right now? Well, they're, they're not, you know, the, our industry is kind of highly densely occupied by some very large producers at the top of the list, like Cameco, Kazanomprom, the French Arano. But below that, you need a lot of new mines, and they might be one, two, three, four million pound a year mines in the United States, Canada, Australia, Africa. As an investor, to go into the gold market, there's probably, you know, 150 different ways to invest in gold. In uranium, well, there might be 100 companies listed as uranium mining companies. There's probably 20 companies that I would give serious consideration to investing in, but that's not a lot of sort of doorways for capital to flow in. And I think if you look at the history of our our industry, whenever there's positive news, when China's building more reactors or positive movements on small modular reactors in the United States, and you see interest coming into the uranium space, it has to flow through very few doors. And that capital really drives a smaller number of stocks higher. So again, that's a positive part of the uranium industry. But again, there's a a number of quality companies out there, but there's not a big number. We're talking with Scott Melby, Chief Executive Officer of Uranium Royalty Corp. I'm Doc G. This is Earn and Invest, and we are going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to remind you that if you're enjoying the conversations we're having here every Monday and Thursday at the Earn and Invest podcast, you can also check us out on Facebook at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. That's earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Again, earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. There, we continue the conversations that start in the podcast. We discuss everything from personal finance to economics to current events. Who knows what will come up next? Become part of our community by going to earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. We'll see you there. Scott, let's bring this down to the level of the earn and investor out there listening to us right now. We've touched on it a little bit, but I want to go into more detail about how we can get involved in this field. How do we invest in uranium or nuclear power? What are the vehicles available to us? And more importantly, where do we go to learn about all this? Yeah, well, to answer the last question first, if you want to learn more about nuclear energy and how it fits in the mix, I would encourage you to go to two websites. One is the World Nuclear Association out of London, and the Nuclear Energy Institute is the organization here in the United States in Washington, D.C. That will put this nuclear energy story into context. When it comes to investing in the uranium fuel cycle, There's a number of ways you can do it. You can invest in the mining equities. Uranium Energy Corp is a good example of a junior mining company, which has scalable low-cost operations in Texas and Wyoming, can produce at a low cost, can scale up quite quickly. 
that's more of a junior company. You could invest in a larger, you know, $6.5 billion company, which is more of a blue chip company like Chemical Corporation out of Canada with some of the world's largest mines in the Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan. You can also invest in the ETFs, which invest in uh, a basket of either all the companies in the space or a significant number of the companies in the space. You can invest in a physical commodity sort of ETF that would be Yellowcake PLC out of London or Sprott Physical Uranium Trust out of the U.S., which warehouses the physical uranium commodity and allows you to speculate on it. And then lastly is the uranium royalty model of which we are the only uranium royalty company in the space, but we give you that diversification through our investment in mines and developments around the world through royalties and streams. So there's a number of ways to go about that. I mean, a great website to kind of look at at what a junior mining company is trying to do in our case in Wyoming and in Texas is uraniumenergycorp.com. And you can see what we're doing and, and some of the technologies that we're using to be competitive in a very global, competitive global uranium market using in-situ recovery techniques. I think everybody's familiar with conventional mining, open pit, underground mining, and that's fine. But in our case, we have a technology which is, I think, environmentally advantageous because we don't actually excavate the ore body, drill, blast. We don't have mill tailings. We actually go into a sandstone ore body like we have like ore bodies like we have in Wyoming and Texas, and we oxidize the uranium and basically extract it from the sandstone as a solution and pump it to the surface. If you visited one of our mines in in Texas, you would see it looks more like an oil and gas facility and collector wells in a well field than it does a mining operation. But there's a number of advantages. Obviously, environmentally, the impact on the land is quite minimal. But on cost, it doesn't take a, a, a lot of capital to build these operations. A conventional mine may cost a billion dollars to build a mine and mill complex. We have a processing plan in place. So we basically build satellite well fields within 50 to 100 miles of the processing plant. And it's a $15 million investment. And the operating costs can be under $30, which is critical. We, we realize we're up against major producers, some state-owned in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, places like this, or big competitive free market operations up in Canada. So we have to produce at a low, probably first or second quartile production costs globally. But we can do it in Texas and Wyoming in a very safe environment and very favorable resource development jurisdiction. Again, come to that website, take a look at what we're doing, and give some explanation as to the mining techniques and, and where we fit in the mix. Speaking of the future, talk about Uranium Royalty Company. What do you think you'll be investing in business-wise over the next 10 years? Well, this is the best part of my job, being in the industry for 37 years and having been engaged in uranium mining operations from you know, Canada to Kazakhstan and Australia, all around the world, is you know, we're a growth platform. We, we just launched publicly a year and a half ago. We have 16 royalties in our portfolio but we want to grow that you know, every year, adding to that portfolio. So we're in contact with miners and developers in, in all of these regions to see where we can come alongside them. Can we provide capital to get them over the hump and get them into production and take a royalty on their operations? So we clearly are interested in, in Africa, whether it be Central Africa, Southern Africa, Namibia. Australia is very prospective. Canada is certainly going to be a leader for many decades. The United States too is really has the ability with this in-situ recovery mining technology to rebound in terms of its role globally. So anywhere uranium is going to be produced, we want to be there uh, present and investing. And tell me, how do you think the COVID pandemic has affected the uranium market? Has it had broad or major effects on what you do? It, it really has. It's quite interesting because the, the consumers of our uranium product are the electric utility companies and their nuclear power plants. You know, there, there's nothing more essential than, than a power plant. And so throughout the pandemic, those nuclear power plants have run uh, pretty much un, unimpacted. They've had to take the precautions for workers that, that, that you would imagine. But those plants ran 24-7 as they're designed to do. 
However, on the mining side, where we have a lot of remote mining operations around the world, they were impacted by COVID. So at one point last year, we saw 50% of global uranium production offline. And that really impacted this supply and demand story that we've been talking about, because already global producers had cut back production voluntarily because of the low uranium price. Then COVID hits on top of it. And this is why we're getting such a big gap between consumption and production. Now, you know, we'll move past COVID, but it has been slow. I mean, it continues to impact production in Kazakhstan and has in, has had impacts in Canada as well. So hopefully we had that behind us, but that COVID impact really just made an improving supply and demand fundamental that much uh, more acute. Do you think we've moved past the acceptance stage when it comes to nuclear? Because when I look at the history, it seems like it's been general public acceptance as well as governmental acceptance, which, yeah. if anything, has held it back in the past. Yeah, well, you know, for much of my career, I'm, when I joined in the 80s, it was, you know, the public acceptance was at 50%, and it was that 50-50. And, and okay, that's fine, but, you know, you did have people that were really opposed. And now, as I sit in 2021, environmentalists that were opposed to nuclear power today are looking at it and going, hey, wait a minute, if we're going to be honest with ourselves and do the math and science on renewables, we better adopt nuclear and we better uh, accept these advanced and small modular reactors, or there's, there's no chance of making any dent on carbon emissions. And even if climate change is not your thing, you have to appreciate the clean air aspects. If you've traveled to India or China, been in Beijing, and you see the horrible air pollution from coal-fired power plants, I mean, I think to a, a small child growing up in Mumbai, they're probably more concerned about breathing clean air tomorrow than they are about the global temperature varying by a degree or two. Both are important, but to that uh, particular person, clean air is more important. What's great is nuclear energy fits both of those criteria. So again, it's, a, it's an exciting time where you know, we can deliver on this promise that we've always known is there. It helps that there's bipartisan. I think, I don't know which drives which, the political support or the public support, but maybe the politicians see that hey, the public is, is, is accepting of this. I mean, we're seeing examples like in the state of Wyoming, you have Bill Gates, who is a developer of a small modular kind of an advanced reactor company called TerraPower. He's done the math and science on renewables. He knows how much our society is being electrified and, and the computerization of everything. And he's put his money where his mouth is and developed this advanced reactor company. He announced a month before last in uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming, that Warren Buffett, who owns the power company Pacific Corp in Wyoming, is going to buy one of these advanced reactors and site it in Wyoming on one of four locations, communities that are losing their coal-fired power plant. So over the next five to six years, that plant will phase out and this nuclear plant will be built and phase in and will truly preserve lost jobs in this green energy transition. So the more stories you have like that, now I'm hearing Montana wants a small modular reactor. Washington State's considering it. Here in my state of Colorado, Pueblo's looking at their options because we're heavily reliant on Powder River Basin coal from Wyoming here in Colorado. And we better figure out what to do. We can't be all wind and solar. That's just not practical. And so, you know, we're seeing nuclear seen in a, in a new light these days. Scott, I really wanted to thank you for coming and talking to us about uranium it really makes me think about our history. And unfortunately, most of the public's experience with nuclear is the atomic bomb, right? That's how yeah. we learned about nuclear energy. And we know of that as such a destructive force. On the other hand, today, we're really looking at it as more of a productive force. This is something that we can use to improve our lives, to clean our air, to make an abundance of energy. It's good to see that it has been refreshed and remodeled and that not only the public, but our governmental policy is changing to understand it better than maybe we did back many decades ago. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life. And if people want to know more, where can they find you? Yeah, well, again, the two hats that I wear, Uranium Energy Corp, we're very eager to see 
this uranium price recovery translate into us bringing new mines back into operation and developing new operations in Texas and Wyoming. So that's an exciting time for our company and exciting time for investors to, to be a part of that. Uranium Royalty is just going out there and finding the best mining developments wherever they be, anywhere in the world, and investing in them on behalf of, of our investors. But again, I encourage you to go to uraniumroyalty.com on that side or uraniumenergy.com to learn about UEC. But again, it's in a very exciting time for investors to be invested in green nuclear energy through the uranium fuel cycle. And really appreciate, Doc, the, the time to, to speak to your listeners today. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Scott Melby. That's a wrap. wanted to take a moment now to talk about community. When I did the episode from earlier this week on where have all the employees gone, I imagined that I would get some negative feedback. This is not surprising to me. I knew this was a touchy topic. I wanted to take a moment to talk about an instant message I received over Twitter and discuss the concerns. I'm going to do this as anonymous because uh, I haven't heard back from this person yet, but I wanted to read the reaction to the episode and then have a discussion of what we do here on Earn and Invest. It reads, Hey Doc, I listened to Earn and Invest for a while now, and I am a fan for sure. I must say, however, that I found the most recent episode with the New Jersey business owners a bit too biased towards their dispositions. The discussion was about a worker crisis, and you didn't platform any workers. You routinely wrangle an impressive panel of guests for your shows, but I found this episode to be a little disappointing. I don't want to disparage the guests, but there were some definite red flags in what they were saying. For example, the salon owner implied she lost her employees due to COVID, but later says two left to start their own salon, and that seven or so quit to join that salon. It sounds like the employees want to work, they just don't want to work for her. There's also the hypocrisy of the owners wanting their loans to be forgiven while this is free money and nay saying there would be workers receiving any support. Also, the salon owner claims hardship then casually reveals in the after show talk that she is opening another location. The tutoring business owner also claimed he can't pay enough to be competitive with unemployment benefits, but says he's paying his current employees overtime. Sounds like there is in fact more money in the budget. Lastly, I'd like to say that both business owners shared their relief over having a large amount of cash socked away and that COVID didn't destroy their finances and businesses. This is not a luxury of the average worker has. Wages are too low. The business owners squirrel away money and then act shocked when people don't want to work for them for minimal compensation. I'm not a hateful person, and I hope you don't read this message as aggressive. I do hope you revisit this topic featuring voices of the workers in a more honest and fair manner. Respectfully, Anonymous. This wasn't Anonymous, but I'm saying Anonymous because uh, we didn't talk about me discussing this message on the show. I have a lot of reactions to this. Um, first and foremost, I want to go back to how we do things here on Earn and Invest. I actually try to discuss topics that are important to our community and reflect our community. So I knew that our community, especially because we have lots of business owners and entrepreneurs, was struggling with this idea of finding employees and went out and found some people in our community who I knew had situations where they were struggling. I didn't know what they were going to say, and I didn't know what their specific struggles were. In fact, that was the idea behind the podcast was to tease those out as we were having a real live conversation. Interestingly enough, you know, our community is not really made of the other side. Our community, this community, is not much employees who are probably taking unemployment now and who are struggling with COVID in that sense. So when I was reflective of who I wanted on this episode, I wanted people who kind of were part of our community, who are of interest to our community. I think that other viewpoint is probably not shared by a lot of people who listen to this podcast. There are not a lot of day-to-day -day wage earners listening. That's just not who our audience is. Um, I would like our audience to be broader, but in a sense, when you look at the demographics, it's a lot of business owners. It's a lot of financial independence operators. It's a lot of digital nomads, people who don't necessarily struggle with the same things that you're talking about. 
I try on the show not to be point counterpoint. Like, I don't want to get guests who are going to argue with each other. That's just not the way I usually run this podcast. What I actually want to do is I want to get people who are struggling from our community and then find out why. But that doesn't preclude from questioning their interpretation of those struggles. So you'll notice in this episode, at one point, I quote a news article, which basically says that it's probably not the unemployment benefits, but other things that are keeping people at home, like COVID and caretaking, etc. I find this is a much more effective way to have a deeper conversation, getting people from our community to talk about their worries and fears, and then having them address some of those counterpoints and see if we can build a deeper discussion. And I just find that to be more productive. I find that to be more a reflection of our community as opposed to finding someone who is not part of this community, who normally doesn't listen to this podcast, who doesn't have a lot of the same basic worries and concerns we have, and bring them on the show just for controversy or even to force their opinions on people who maybe aren't that receptive to those opinions. I'd rather talk to us, the people who have these opinions, and then question those opinions, dive deeper, and see if maybe we can question them together as a community. I just think that our listeners are going to be much more receptive to that kind of conversation. You know, there are a bunch of other points you made. Um, We could argue one way back and forth, but I would submit to you that neither of these business owners have done as well as they could have if COVID didn't happen. In fact, I think these business owners would have done amazingly better if COVID hadn't occurred. And so I think this has been a struggle for them, just as any small businessman or entrepreneur who's really just trying to make a way in this world, trying to earn and invest in their future. The fact that they had money stocked away and we're able to weather this storm because of that is really a perfect example of what we're trying to tell people to do in their personal finance too. We want you to save money. We want you to have that emergency fund. So we can't certainly blame them for doing what we're asking people to do and say, well, a lot of employees don't have that luxury, but that's kind of what Earn and Invest is trying to get people to do is develop that luxury. So I believe we should celebrate and not criticize them for having planned ahead so well. I mean, we can dive into the weeds of why they took PPP money, but you do have to admit it doesn't make a lot of sense for the government to give them this loan, forgive it, and then increase employment taxes and pretty much take it all back. Then why was the sense of giving the loan in the first place? Um, These are just my thoughts. Uh, You know, this is a give and take. And I do very much appreciate your message, and I definitely appreciate the respectful tone you used. I think this is a bigger conversation, and by you writing me this text, I can then bring this conversation to our viewers and elicit other people to give their opinions. I'm sure there are many people out there who are listening to what you wrote and saying, right on, this is a very one-sided discussion, let's hear more of the other side, and I am open to having you or other people come on and talk about the other perspective. The goal of my podcast is not to solve any of these problems with one 45-minute segment. It's to bring up these questions so we can discuss them openly either here on the podcast or in the Facebook group at earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Two places that we definitely can start and have this discussion, as well as on Twitter and Instagram and where have you. Uh, But I appreciate this kind of input. I think we should talk about it more I invite you or others to come onto this podcast and have that specific discussion. And so we can all learn and grow and see all the perspectives because I think your perspective is very valid just as well as the business owners who are on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming and listening to Earn and Invest. And we'll see you next week. Cool.
That was a lot of fun. I thought we really got, for me, I thought like we really got to the bottom of nuclear, why it's important and what you do. Was there anything you felt like we didn't get a chance to talk about? No, I, I, I think it touched all the all the bases and, and it's nice. I always love when hosts have bring some of their, like, you know, the, uh, the Illinois story is, is a good one. I mean, a lot of people don't realize how much, you know, if you have an electric vehicle in, in Illinois, which yeah, I do. And you, you can claim clean energy vehicle because a lot of your electricity is coming from carbon free. So, uh, again, we got to preserve those those plants. Hopefully you don't have the most functional of legislatures. I know that's not yeah. new to you, yeah. but uh, actually the legislation that is going to preserve those plants is not held up because of the nuclear provisions. It's about the pace of retiring gas and coal-fired power plants. So yeah. the gas and coal people are uh, are fighting it. So hopefully the nuclear provisions can prevail. I was about to say, they, they've, they've got strong lobbyists. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the electrical, the electric vehicle issue is really an important issue, right? Because we know that in a sense, if you are using traditional sources of energy to charge up your vehicle you're not being nearly as energy efficient nor as clean as you think as things yeah. stand right now so like you said in illinois we are we are a little more clean because it's more you nuclear can, you can claim that um, you are actually making an impact so. but but not everywhere and i think yeah. that's that is certainly one of the best arguments um i think for nuclear is that yes if if we are going to make this revolution in how we do things if we are going to make ourselves more gas independent mm-hmm. um then we've got to have some other source of energy because at this point, just plugging it into your wall doesn't mean it's necessarily clean, right? Yeah, exactly. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.